This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. Because this episode is late, I'm going to skip the Patreon thank yous this week, but we will get back to it next time. I want to thank you so much for your patience. I had a terrible cold over the weekend, over Mother's Day and everything. It was a complete mess. But I'm finally feeling myself today. It's uh, Tuesday today. Yeah, I don't even remember what days of the week it is. So I am hoping to have this out for you by Wednesday, which is tomorrow, if all goes well. And by all going well, I mean by Fred keeping his big mouth shut while I'm trying to record. Yeah, that's right. I went there. Anyway, Thanks again for your patience and understanding while I was getting over that mess of a cold that I caught from my daughter, by the way. So blame her and Fred too, but mostly her. Anyway, in all seriousness, before we delve into today's story, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains graphic details involving sexual assault and violence against women and may be triggering or upsetting for some listeners and it is not suitable for young listeners. So if you have children around, you may want to save this episode for another time. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Dreamers, we're going to start off today's episode by talking a little bit about the death penalty. This isn't going to be a discussion or a debate about capital punishment. We're just going to talk about the facts. There are currently 30 states in the United States that have a death penalty statute, though nine states currently have a moratorium on the death penalty, and this includes California. Three states have a valid death penalty statute in place, not on a moratorium, and have not executed anyone in 10 years. That leaves the following states where capital punishment is currently being practiced. Idaho, Utah, South Dakota, Nebraska, Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Virginia, and Ohio. Five men have been executed in the United States thus far this year. On January 30th, Robert Mitchell Jennings was put to death by lethal injection in Texas after serving 31 years on death row for gunning down Houston police officer Elston Howard during a botched robbery in 1988. He began serving his sentence at the age of 30 and was executed at the age of 61. 
On February 7th, Dominique Hakeem Marcel Ray was put to death by lethal injection in Alabama after serving 23 years for shooting and killing brothers Reinhard and Ernest Mavins in 1994 when they refused to join his gang and for the 1995 kidnapping, rape, and murder of 15-year-old Tiffany Harville. He began serving his sentence at the age of 19 and was executed at the age of 42. On February 28th, Billy Wayne Cobble was put to death by lethal injection in Texas after serving 30 years for the 1989 murders of Robert and Zelda Vika and their son Bobby. He began serving his sentence at the age of 40 and was executed at the age of 70, making him the oldest person executed in the state of Texas since resuming executions in 1982. On April 24th, John William King was put to death by lethal injection in Texas after serving 21 years for the 1998 murder of James Byrd Jr. And because James's murder had been so atrocious, it made headlines across the nation, if not the world. And it is a case that most of you listening have heard of. James Byrd was the man who accepted a ride from John King, Sean Barry, and Lawrence Brewer when the three men ended up attacking James, chaining him to the bumper of their truck and dragging him along the asphalt for three miles or 4.8 kilometers. I'm not going to get into the details of what happened to James Bird, but based on his autopsy and the condition his body and his body parts were found, it was clear he was alive for most of the ordeal, attempted to keep his head from hitting the ground, meaning that he knew what was happening to him. He was aware and conscious, and he suffered tremendously. King began serving his sentence at the age of 23, and was executed at the age of 44. His co-conspirator, Lawrence Brewer, was also executed on September 24, 2011, at the age of 44. The day before his execution, he granted an interview to the local news. He was asked about regrets. He said, As far as regrets? No. I have no regrets. I'd do it all over again to tell you the truth. The third conspirator, Sean Barry, was also convicted of capital murder, and he was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. He will be eligible for parole for the first time in 2038. Today, he too is 44 years old. And most recently, on May 2nd, Scotty Garnell Morrow was put to death by lethal injection in Georgia after serving 27 years for the 1994 shooting death of ex-girlfriend Barbara Ann Young and her friend Tanya Rochelle Woods, and doing so in front of Barbara's young children, an eight-month-old and a five-year-old. He began serving his sentence at the age of 25 and was executed at the age of 52. There are 15 more executions scheduled for the remainder of 2019 in Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, and Ohio. And unless any of them are issued a stay, each of those will go through as planned. 
Gavin Newsom was sworn in as the governor of California five months ago, on January 7, 2019. Two months after taking office, he ordered the moratorium on the death penalty. And with that, for as long as he is in office, no executions will be taking place in California. His order also eliminated the current lethal injection procedure and the execution chamber located at San Quentin State Prison has been shut down. So all 737 of California's condemned inmates have a reprieve, at least for now. The last execution to be carried out in California was in 2006, when 76-year-old Clarence Ray Allen was executed for ordering the hit that took the life of the target of the hit, along with two other bystanders. He spent a total of 23 years on death row, which seems to be close to the average when it comes to all the years it takes for appeals to be exhausted. So even if Governor Newsom hadn't ordered the moratorium, it wasn't like California was on its way to executing anyone. Before he took office, I had checked to see if California's death row inmates had their dates set, and none of them did. Newsom's order just made it official. Nobody's going to the execution chamber anytime soon in California. So that leaves 737 people, 22 of them women, sitting on California's death row. The men at San Quentin and the women's death row is located at Central California's women's facility in Chowchilla, California. Incidentally, only four women have been executed in California since 1893, and the last one being in 1962. Inmates on death row in California are more likely to die of old age than to ever see the inside of the execution chamber, unless they take matters into their own hands. A man named Carlos Amador was witness to a horrific crime. On May 4, 2002, as Amador looked on, Virendra Govin strangled 42-year-old Gita Kumar while his brother, Pravin Govin, repeatedly punched her about the face and body. They repeated the vicious attack three more times, doing the same things to her children, 16-year-old Tulsi and 18-year-old Paras, and her mother-in-law, 63-year-old Sitabin Patel. When the Govan brothers were finished killing, the home of the victims that they resided in, located in Hollywood Hills, California, was set ablaze. And the four victims had burned so badly, the medical examiner was unable to determine if it was the strangulation that killed the family or if it was the fire itself. You see, Carlos Amador in some capacity was complicit in the quadruple murder. But sometime in 2003, he cut a deal with prosecutors in exchange for not being made to face the death penalty in his case and for his testimony against the brothers. Amador pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, which carried a sentence of 15 years to life. The brothers were charged with capital murder, arson, robbery, burglary, and kidnapping, and the death penalty was sought in both of their cases because their crime was committed 
with the special circumstance of being motivated by financial gain. That financial gain, as it turned out, was over a business dispute. The Govan brothers owned a hotel called the Studio Place Inn, located at 10740 Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, California. The sole surviving member of the Kumar family, Gita's husband, Paras and Tulsi's dad, Siddhabin Patel's son, Harish Patel, owned the hotel right next door to their hotel, called Universal City Inn, located at 10730 Ventura Boulevard. Apparently, both the Govins and Patel were interested in expanding their respective hotels, and at the heart of the issue was an alley located behind both of their properties. Both of them wanted this patch of alleyway. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, a hearing regarding the hotelier's dispute was scheduled for some time in the middle of May, just a few days after the quadruple murders, and it was to be heard before the Los Angeles City Planning Commission. But according to Varendra Govin, he told police that the dispute over the land had already been resolved prior to the killings, and he claimed it was their respective contractors that they had each hired that were handling their expansion projects that were the ones who were at odds, not them. He went on to explain what they had decided to do was use the alleyway as a loading zone that could be used by both owners and that they had agreed on that. There was no conflict, no animosity at all between the two families. But investigators on the case weren't taking Govin's word for it. During their investigation, they began electronically monitoring their suspects, which included the Govin brothers as well as Amador. And what their electronic surveillance revealed were discussions of creating alibis, getting their stories straight, making up alibi locations as well as witnesses, and reminding one another that they needed to be careful when it came to everything that they said and everything that they did. But they obviously didn't realize that they were being recorded. All three of them were subsequently arrested in July of 2002 and charged with the four killings. And Amador had a history with at least one of the brothers, Pravin Govin. In 1993, Pravin was tried and convicted of assault with a deadly weapon when he shot a man who had sold him an auto body repair business. Carlos Amador was an employee at the body shop, and Pravin had approached him and asked for his help with that attempted murder. But Amador refused to help. When it came to the more recent case, when the Govan brothers approached Amador again looking for help, this time he went along. According to Amador, he met up with the Govan brothers at a North Hollywood restaurant. From there, they drove to the victim's home. When they arrived, they took the four victims into a bedroom. They were beaten and bound, blindfolded and gagged with duct tape. Then, Virendra Govin proceeded to put zip ties around each of their necks. Then one by one, he began tightening the zip ties. Amador described watching Gita gasp for air as the zip tie was being pulled tight. As she began fighting and kicking, Pravin Govin bound her by her ankles, 
With her wrists bound as well, she was hogtied. As this was going on, one of her kids, Paras, was able to get out of his duct tape restraints and asked them to not hurt his mom. But the brothers were able to get him restrained once again. Once all four victims were strangled, the house was set on fire and they fled in Amador's vehicle. As it were, a house up the street was equipped with surveillance equipment and it captured Amador's vehicle driving in the direction of the victim's home at approximately 8 p.m. on the night of the killings. And that same camera captured the vehicle driving away from the home a little bit after 11 p.m. Six minutes later, the sole remaining member of the family, Harish Patel, was captured on the same surveillance video driving towards the home. Then 12 minutes later, fire trucks are captured on video going in the same direction. Virendra Govan was convicted of the four murders, and in December of 2004, he was sentenced to death, as was his brother Pravin the following year. Pravin Govan continues to sit on California's death row to this day, awaiting whatever happens to him to happen. Most likely, natural causes will get him before the state does. As for his brother, his story played out differently. On November 4, 2018, Virendra Govan was found unresponsive in his cell. CPR was administered, but nothing could be done. He was pronounced dead. He would become the 25th person to commit suicide on California's death row since 1978. And oddly enough, his suicide came on the heels of the 24th suicide, just two days earlier. Though the deaths are considered to be unrelated, and suicide amongst inmates is not uncommon, it is unusual for two suicides to have been committed within such a short period of time, a mere 48 hours in this case. And this person who committed suicide on death row two days before Virendra Govan took his own life, he had just been sentenced to death less than a month prior to his death. And we are going to discuss his crimes here today on this 91st episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of a Killer's Rage. I want to start off by telling you about a young woman, only 19 years old at the time her life forever changed on the evening of September 27, 1992 a young woman named Jennifer S. Benson. She was employed at a home for disabled children. Her shift was the graveyard, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It was her routine to take the last bus of the night from where she lived to her place of work. While she was waiting for the bus that night, she decided to go into a nearby convenience store to purchase a couple of items. But by the time she made it back outside to the bus stop, she had missed it. The bus had came and left without her on it. And of course, she became really upset and panicked. This was the last bus for the night, and she really had no other way of getting herself to work. 
Then, out of nowhere, with impeccable timing, a car pulled up. The man inside driving asked her if she needed a ride. At first, she hesitated, and she turned him down. He was kind of like, okay, suit yourself, and he was getting ready to drive off when she suddenly changed her mind. Because he had been so willing to drive off when she said no, she automatically assumed the guy was harmless. He didn't pester. He didn't insist. He was just going to go on with his night. So she took that as a sign that he must not have any other intentions or agenda. So she changed her mind. She decided to accept the ride. Besides, she had sized him up and in her opinion, he appeared to be harmless. And she needed that ride. So she got in the car. She had no fears or anxiety. And when she got in, they started driving. And he was really nice. She even described him as charming. As they drove, he asked Jennifer for her phone number. She told him that she had a boyfriend. But in order to not make things weird, she decided to give him a number anyway. But the number she gave him was one that she made up. She didn't give him her actual phone number. So he dropped her off at work. She thanked him. She went inside to begin her shift. And he went on about his night. So she thought. But when Jennifer's shift ended the next morning at 6 a.m. and she clocked out and went outside, she found this man who had given her a ride the night before was still there in the parking lot waiting for her. I would have thought that was totally weird and I would not have been comfortable at all with finding this guy out there waiting. But Jennifer... Her 19-year-old self didn't seem to think it that strange. She even said when she saw him that next morning, she wasn't scared at all. Her logic was this. If he meant to do her any harm, he would have done it last night. He's not dangerous. He had the perfect opportunity last night. And remember, he's charming and nice. He offered her a ride home from work, and she accepted. Then he brought up the phone number. He called it. It wasn't hers. She explained that she couldn't give him her number because she had a boyfriend. It didn't take long, just a matter of minutes, when suddenly everything changed. The man's whole entire demeanor completely flipped. He snapped. Whatever Jennifer was saying to him in the moment, it was just regular conversation that she was having in mid-sentence. He suddenly grabbed her by the hair and began bashing her head into the dashboard. She next realized that he had a gun pointed at her head. And all she could say over and over Is this some kind of joke? This has got to be some kind of joke, right? But he just told her to shut up, bitch. Shut up, bitch. 
what Jennifer couldn't have known. And this really had nothing to do with her being only 19 years old or being naive. No. What she didn't know was she accepted a ride from a man who was masterful when it came to deception. Jennifer could have been 19 or 29, 39, 49. He's that special kind of evil that people don't immediately see or realize. Over time, he learned. He knew how to be cunning and calculating. And what compounds his behavior is the fact that he is one angry individual. And when he gets mad, an evil within him emerges. And it's explosive. It's volatile. And it's something unforeseen. Jennifer could not have known that when she accepted a ride from a man who had such a deep hatred for women. And his anger manifests itself into a kind of homicidal rage and violence that is as dangerous as anything you can imagine. It is not normal, and it is not anything Jennifer could have ever expected. And this is who she found herself alone in the car with. Next, this man produced a knife, and then some twine. He took the twine and bound Jennifer's hands behind her back. Satisfied that she was securely tied up, the man continued driving. And as she lay still in the vehicle, glancing upwards out the window and towards the sky, all she could see were utility poles whizzing by. One after another after another. And with each one that passed, Jennifer's fear increased. This ordeal had started on the outskirts of the California desert. And the more time that passed, the further he drove, the more utility poles that they passed by, the deeper and deeper they were going into the vast and desolate desert. Jennifer began to feel as though she was on her last ride. He was taking her out to nowhere. He was going to kill her and do away with her and nobody would ever know what became of her. Nobody would ever find her out here. She had no idea what this man had in mind though. She was beyond fear. She entered into a state of shock and her mind kept trying to come up with a plan, a way to get herself out of this. What can she do to get out of the situation? No answers came. She was certain of one thing. She knew that he was going to hurt her. She was certain he was going to rape her. She steeled herself for that as they went. And then the car finally rolled to a stop. He shifted the car into park. And then he turned it off. And with his knife, he cut her shorts that she was wearing off her body. And next, he cut off her underwear. 
And then he got on top of her and began pummeling her with his fist about the head and face. And then he tried to rape her, but he wasn't able to. So he forced her to perform oral sex. Then he made his next demand. Tell him that she loved him. Desperate to try and save her life, she complied. She told the stranger, I love you. But as soon as the words escaped her lips, he raised his hand, swung it down, and smacked her hard across the face and yelled, Bitch, you're lying. You're lying, bitch. Say it like you mean it. Doing what she could to sound as sincere as possible, she repeated, I love you. But he continued accusing her of lying, demanding she keep trying until he felt as though she meant it. But no matter which way she told him that she loved him, none of it sufficed. And his anger continued to explode. He took her underwear and he stuffed them into her mouth as far down her throat as he could shove it, forcing his entire fist into her mouth while he continued screaming, Tell me you love me! Tell me you love me! Tell me you love me! All she could do was start crying, and she just cried. She couldn't figure out how to do this right. If she could just say it differently, if she could just change how she was saying, I love you, what was she doing wrong? Was it her tone, her inflection? She didn't know, but then, who was she kidding? He was so deep into this savage attack on her, three little words weren't about to stop this man. No matter what she did, he was growing angrier and angrier by the minute. And she could see it in his face, and she could feel it. He was just so damn mad. He next took Jennifer by the throat and began to manually strangle her. She began feeling her vision fading. She could no longer see what was going on around her. She described it as a whiteness, a blinding whiteness, and then she could hear music. In that moment, Jennifer thought she had died. This is what death was. It was bright, and music was playing. Maybe this was heaven. And heaven was a very welcome thing for Jennifer. And she wanted to go there. Death was better than what she was being forced to endure. What she thought was death and her soul traveling to heaven... This was not the case. She had passed out. Her mind and her body just couldn't take it anymore. It wanted to give her a reprieve from the pain. But she was suddenly brought back, snapped back into this nightmare that wasn't a nightmare because this was really happening to her. He was attempting to get her to come too. We've heard of sadistic predators do this in the past. They choke their victims to the brink of death, and then they let go in order to toy with them more, and then they do it again. 
but this man's manner of reviving Jennifer was to continue attacking her, shaking her, punching her, pushing down hard on her chest. Jennifer described this moment as like being when you doze off, but then something suddenly jolts you back awake and you didn't even realize that you fell asleep for a moment. It was like that. And before she knew it, just when she thought she was welcoming death, she was back in this hellish life. And she felt like, God, oh no, not this, not back here again. She wanted to go back to dying. She wanted to die. She wanted this to be over because she could not see any other way of getting out. No other escape but death. But as she sat there hoping he would simply put her out of her misery, there was suddenly an out. The man opened the car door and demanded she get out. And her mind just instantly started telling her to run, get herself out of there, run as fast as she could. And just as that thought crossed her mind, the man grabbed a hold of her hair, yanked her out and down onto the ground. But in the next second, he yanked her by her hair again, dragging her all the way back into his car. The split second she was on the ground when she thought she had been given the chance to run was immediately taken away from her when he pulled her back. That moment she thought she would get out of this alive was gone, as was any hope that she had had that she was going to survive this. And once her hope was gone, she had reached her breaking point. She had gone over the edge to that point of desperation where she just wanted this to be over. She began asking her attacker, begging him to please kill her. Please, just end this. She pleaded with him, kill me. He looked at her. He raised his gun and pointed it right at her temple. He pulled back the hammer of the gun. She heard the clicking sound that it made. She readied herself to take a bullet to the head. And then, nothing happened. It was just quiet and still. She couldn't take it anymore. She began screaming, just kill me, just kill me. But dreamers, you and I know this is all part of this man's game. He is loving what this is doing to Jennifer. He's not going to kill her. He's not done having his fun yet. He pulled her out of the car again, this time dragging her towards the back of the car. He popped the trunk, forced her in, and closed it. And he began driving again. As she lay there in the trunk, in the dark, all these thoughts filled her head. One of them being that this was not this man's first rodeo. Maybe it was just a vibe. Maybe he was just way too calm, way too confident about what he was doing. He had complete command and control of everything. And nothing about what was going on was new to this guy. And she could tell that she wasn't the first woman that this man has terrorized. 
There really was no way Jennifer could have known what was in this man's past at the time, but she wasn't wrong. This man had done this before, six years earlier, not too far from where they were on this day, down in South Orange County, the city of Mission Viejo, California. On the evening of January 18, 1986, Robin Brandley, a 23-year-old Saddleback College communications major, had been working as an usher at a jazz concert that was being held on campus. She stayed until after the reception and then headed to her car at approximately 10.30 p.m. 30 minutes later, she was discovered dead laying on the ground next to her vehicle in the parking lot. She was fully clothed. She had not been sexually assaulted, nor had she been robbed. She was, however, stabbed 41 times in the upper torso, and it did not appear that very much of a struggle had occurred either, which meant she was taken completely by surprise as she got to her car. At the time, Robin's murder was thought to have been linked to an attack that occurred the previous April of 1985, in which a 25-year-old student was abducted from a different parking lot on the same campus by two men in a van. They beat her about the face and head, removed her clothing, sexually assaulted her, and then about six hours later, they left her naked near a freeway off-ramp. Now, to me, dreamers, nothing about these two cases sounded remotely similar, except for the fact that the attacks both happened on the same college campus. Aside from that, nothing about either crime indicated that they were committed by the same person or persons. And to be honest, if we are going to compare crimes and modus operandi, this abduction and assault on this woman in 1985 sounds eerily similar to the very first case we covered on California Dreaming, Episode 1, The Tale of Random Task. The case where wannabe MMA fighter and actor Joseph Sun and his associate kidnapped, beat, tortured, and raped a woman that they abducted in Huntington Beach on Christmas Eve of 1990. Anyway, there had apparently been 24-hour security patrol on the campus, but only two officers were assigned to be on duty at night. There were also student volunteers who were available to escort students to their cars at night, but it did not seem volunteer escorts worked on the weekends as Robin's murder occurred on a Saturday night, and her murder definitely sent a panic through the campus, especially because of the randomness and the brutality of the crime, and the lack of any motive other than to kill. And then there was nothing. No evidence, no clues, no witnesses, no weapon left behind, nothing to lead investigators in any direction as to who may have committed this murder. He seemingly came out of nowhere, stabbed Robin, and disappeared into the darkness. Despite Robin's family's efforts to keep her case alive, it ended up growing cold. Very cold. Homicide detectives, they had nothing. Every potential lead only took them to dead ends. Her family tried hiring a private investigator. They even looked at the possibility the killer was a fellow student at Saddleback College, but nothing panned out and nobody could have possibly imagined that Robin's killer would go on to kill again and again 
and again and again. Nor could Jennifer have known that she was laying in the trunk of the very same man who killed Robin Brandley six years earlier. She had no idea that she was in the presence of a monster as she was trapped in that dark trunk. And as the day wore on, and it was getting warmer and warmer, this is fall in California. The summer heat tends to carry over, even into October. She also had no idea that this man was headed for a place investigators would later describe as this man's favorite killing grounds. She just laid there, in the dark, imagining the worst. Her hands were still tied with that twine behind her back. She felt hopeless. Dreadful thoughts consumed her. Is he going to torture her some more? She thought maybe he had some secret hideaway or a dungeon where he was going to keep her locked up forever. Jennifer's thoughts were the things nightmares are made of. The most horrible things that she could have imagined him doing to her. All of it came into her mind as he drove. The terror was all-consuming. Jennifer didn't know it, but her fears, they were very, very real and for a very valid reason. Not only had this man who had her captive in his trunk murdered Robin so brutally, he didn't stop there. By the time this man was done, he would be responsible for the deaths of four more women in California. All of them were sex workers, and all of them were dumped in the California desert. You see, he learned a valuable lesson after he murdered Robin Brandley. Because she was such a popular co-ed, she was pretty and from a good, affluent Orange County family, Her death garnered a tremendous amount of media coverage, combined with an immense investigation on the part of homicide detectives on the case. So he wasn't going to let that happen again. And he did so by changing the type of women he would target. He assumed the media and law enforcement would be less interested in victims who were marginalized. Women, he figured, would be disregarded if they came up missing or dead women that were involved in sex work. And as sad as that may sound, he wasn't wrong. After Robin, he targeted sex workers. To him, they were less likely to be noticed when they went missing, and law enforcement would be less interested and under a lot less pressure when it came to those cases as opposed to murdering a victim like Robin. Two and a half years after Robin's murder, her killer struck again. Her name was Julie McGee. She was 29 years old. On July 17, 1988, he picked up Julie in Palm Springs, California. He brought her to a remote area outside of town, a place that was quite desolate. And there, he shot her and killed her with a 45 ACP caliber pistol. Her body was discovered dumped in a ditch near Cathedral City. Again, the killer left no physical or forensic evidence behind that would help lead investigators to any viable suspects. 
Julie's case, just like Robin's, soon grew cold. Two months later, on September 25, 1988, the killer next picked up 31-year-old Marianne Wells at around 10 p.m. in San Diego, California. She too was shot and killed, and her body later found in an abandoned warehouse in downtown San Diego. Six months later, on April 16, 1989, the killer picked up 18-year-old Tammy Irwin in Palm Springs. She too was shot and killed, and she was discovered on a street in Palm Springs the following day. This time, the killer left behind one piece of evidence a shell casing. And from there, the killings in California, at least the ones attributed to this killer, would stop for a while. All of these cases would grow cold. They had these four victims. All the crimes were very similar. All the victims were sex workers. And all of them were shot, killed, and dumped. But maybe because of the time the late 80s. Maybe it was because of the geography. The killer operated across at least three, perhaps even four different Southern California counties, including San Diego, Orange, Riverside, and San Bernardino. Maybe it was the fact that communication between counties and jurisdictions was limited, if it existed at all. Or maybe this killer was right. Because they were sex workers, perhaps investigators weren't looking all that hard to begin with. There was a pattern, but the various law enforcement agencies weren't connecting the dots between them, and they definitely did not have any idea that they might just have a serial killer on their hands. So, who is this man? Well, his name is Andrew Erdialis. Not a whole lot is known about Erdialis's early life, other than he was born in Chicago, Illinois, on June 4, 1964. The only thing noted in his childhood history just before he turned 12 was that he fatally attacked the family dog with a baseball bat, but told his parents that the dog fell. After high school, Erdi Ellis joined the United States Marine Corps, and this is how this man ended up in California. From 1984 until 1991, he was stationed at the Marine Corps base in Camp Pendleton, California, and this is where he received melee and hand-to-hand combat training. After he was honorably discharged in 1991, he went back home to Chicago where he stayed at his parents' house. The following year, in September of 1992, he traveled back to California for a vacation, and it was during this trip that his attack on Jennifer S. Benson took place. And there she was, in the trunk of this killer's car, speeding down a highway headed to God knows where, and Jennifer was filled with terror certain that she's headed towards her own death. Scared and desperate, she tried to find comfort. She stated in an interview, 
And by the way, dreamers, Jennifer S. Benson has been very open and outspoken about her experience. She's done a number of interviews, and many of them you could find on YouTube. She said, I just laid there, and I just thought about how I was going to die, and I just prayed. And I started crying, saying, God, if there is a God, and you know that I'm in this trunk right now, and you know that I'm about to be cut up into many pieces, please take my life or let me get away. And what happened next, Jennifer is convinced, is nothing short of God's hand reaching out and answering her prayers. But to be honest, dreamers, I think it was 100% all Jennifer. It was her sheer determination, her strength, her courage, and her will to live that intervened, not divinity. She snapped. She became hysterical, and she filled with this torrent of strength and resolve to get herself out of this. She described hearing and feeling the twine that had her wrists bound behind her back beginning to break apart, and she just somehow managed to break those bindings and free her hands. But then she thought, okay, now what? It's completely pitch black in the trunk. She knows as soon as this man stops his car, she's good as dead. Somehow, someway, this girl, only 19 years old, never having been confronted with anything remotely as terrifying as this situation that she's found herself in now, managed to dig deep and discover the sense of confidence and tenacity that she didn't even know that she was capable of. But our minds and our bodies are capable of amazing things when everything is on the line. Jennifer said, When I was in that trunk, all I had to do was reach from one corner to the other corner and say this is the width of the trunk. And then I thought, okay, here in the middle, this is where the lock is. So the mechanism to unlock the trunk is on the inside and it's with me. All she had was her sense of touch. She felt around the inside of the trunk and began ripping away at the material that carpeted the inside. She started pulling on all the wiring and felt around on the inside of the metal frame of the trunk. And then I felt this thing. It just felt like a little lever. And it clicked. And I saw light just coming in everywhere. And I just went, oh my God, I can get out. And then I got so excited, I lifted it even more. And just as Jennifer did that, she began hearing her attacker yelling and cursing when he noticed the trunk had somehow popped open. He stopped the car. He put it in park. And he got out. And as he did so, Jennifer grabbed the trunk and pulled it back down. He pushed down on it once more, just to ensure that it was secured and he got back in the car. Dreamers, I found it somewhat interesting and lucky for Jennifer's sake that her attacker thought so little of the trunk opening up like that. I mean, the latching mechanism of a trunk is usually pretty secure, and I'm certain there has been an occasion when someone has been driving and the trunk has inexplicably opened. 
I think I've accidentally pulled the trunk release on the inside of the passenger compartment before, but I can't say that my trunk has suddenly come loose and opened on its own while I was driving. But if I had a live person in the trunk and my trunk suddenly opened, I would think that the person in the trunk must have done something to cause the trunk to unlatch. And remember, this is 1992. So depending on how old this car was, he may or may not have had that safety release lever inside the car. It doesn't sound like she unlatched an emergency release because of the way she had to pull apart the inside of the trunk. But either way, he didn't even bother to check if Jennifer had somehow gotten loose and opened the trunk. Luckily, because he probably would have become even more enraged. So after he thought he secured the trunk, he got back in the car. And when he started it, he put it into gear and he pressed down on the accelerator and his tires spun. He tried again and his tires kept spinning. Somehow, he became stuck when he stopped to check on the trunk. And it was now or never for Jennifer. This wasn't meant to be the end of the ride, but it was now. They weren't going anywhere. And if she didn't take the chance to save herself, she was going to die. She pushed the trunk back open, naked from the waist down with no shoes on. She leapt out of the trunk and ran for her life as fast as she possibly could. She was running along the road when she spotted a car about to drive past her, alongside her. She tried running along with it. And as they passed, she saw them. She saw their faces, an older couple. She begged and pleaded for help, but the woman in the passenger seat pounded her husband on the shoulder and demanded that he keep going faster. She heard her tell him, no, 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 go. The driver accelerated, leaving Jennifer in their dust. As that car faded into the horizon, Jennifer glanced back. And this... This Dreamers is truly like a horror movie. It's as if this man watched every slasher film in order to develop his kill plan. He was behind Jennifer, chasing her with a machete in his hand. A machete. What a nightmare. Jennifer just turned and kept running and running as fast as her legs could take her. And then she spotted another truck coming up the same road. This time, to make sure that they would stop, she ran right in front of it. And she continued running straight towards it. And the driver of the truck slammed on his brakes. His tires skidded as his truck screeched to a halt. Of course, the scene must have been shocking. But luckily, the two men looked past that in the moment. Both of them were United States Marines. They opened their door, and she jumped into the vehicle, screaming that the man was trying to kill her. She pointed towards the direction from which she came to show them his car. But it was nowhere to be found. The men wanted to go after this guy, but Jennifer begged them not to. Don't. He's got a machete. He's going to kill you. But to be honest, dreamers, even if those guys did try to go after him, which I'm glad they didn't, but if they did, 
he would have ran like a coward. He's a sadistic bully. He can only find his own sense of power and self-worth by picking on people weaker and more vulnerable than him. Jennifer was safe now. Thank goodness she got away with her life. But her assailant, he got away too. He had taken off and he was gone. But in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come, this man would continue to penetrate every moment of Jennifer's life. She survived, but into what kind of life had she now been thrusted into? This man had all the intentions in the world of killing Jennifer, but she got away. He got away too, with everything he needed to know about her, to find her and finish what he had started. He knew her name. He knew where she lived. He knew where she worked. And of him, she knew nothing. And thus began a slow, painful unraveling of Jennifer's very existence. She was consumed with fear. The paranoia was paralyzing. It crept into every corner of her life, and soon she just fell apart. She described surviving this attack as the beginning of a long downhill journey. And not only did she know nothing about him, Neither did the police. She reported the attack. She went to the hospital. There was no sign that she had been sexually assaulted. Her attacker tried, but he failed miserably. She provided a description of her attacker, but that led nowhere. No suspects, no witnesses. Remember, those Marines didn't see anything or anyone when they saved Jennifer. And the leads were thin, and soon, those ran dry. She had scars on her wrists, but those healed, though they left their mark. And her case faded away too. And it did so, if for no other reason than the fact that the detectives who were assigned to her case really didn't believe her story. So once that becomes the place from which police are coming from, all hopes of them working the case are gone as well. The only thing Jennifer had to prove what happened to her was not a figment of her imagination or the marks that were on her wrists. Of them, she said, that was my only opportunity to try and tell somebody what happened to me. So I actually took a razor blade to them and opened them all back up. And then I just remember waking up in a mental hospital strapped to a bed. And that's where I would live for the next three and a half to four years. Mental hospitals. There was no place else on earth Jennifer S. Benson felt she could be where her attacker couldn't find her. He wasn't something that she dreamt up out there in the dust and desert. He was very real as was the pain and fear which he inflicted, and he was still out there, knowing that she could identify him. He made no attempts to conceal himself or his identity, as he had no intentions of allowing Jennifer to live. She survived, but not really. 
She said, My life just spiraled downhill because he was on the loose. It was like I had saved my life and then I felt like for what? Everything that I looked at, I looked at differently. I saw no beauty in anything. Everything just seemed evil. What Jennifer didn't know was that the same day that she escaped, her attacker returned the car. It was a rental. And he flew back to Illinois that very same day. He was gone, but she had no idea. And for the next three years, he would lay low. As afraid as Jennifer was of him finding her, he was just as afraid of her being able to identify him to authorities. So he stayed quiet, very quiet, halfway across the United States. But Andrew Erdialis would not remain dormant forever. He's a serial killer. The compulsion to kill is always seething and festering inside his dark mind. Erdialis returned to California in March of 1995. While here, he picked up a fourth sex worker, 32-year-old Denise Manny in Cathedral City, California, though from what I read, she did not get into his car willingly. He forced her in, drove her out to the desert, shot her to death, and then left her out there naked, where her remains were left for scavengers and birds of prey. So why is Erdialis continuing to come back to California from Illinois to fulfill his compulsions to kill? I am not in this guy's head, nor do I want to be, but my best guess is that it's his comfort zone. He's familiar with the area. He has what's been described as his dumping grounds. He has not been linked to any of the killings, so why mess with a good thing, right? Well, yeah, it took some time but eventually he felt confident enough to begin killing in Chicago and the surrounding areas also. He found a job working as a security guard at a mall in Chicago, and for all intents and purposes, he was relatively well-known and likable and trusted. Amongst his co-workers, family, friends, mall shoppers, he was just the average mall cop. But the killer in him continued to exist below the surface. Not quite wanting to arouse any attention or suspicion in and around where he worked and lived, he crossed over into Indiana, Bloomington to be exact, in April of 1996. This is when his crime spree began once again. He picked up a 25-year-old sex worker named Laura Oliaki. Her body was discovered on April 14th floating in Wolf Lake, which is back over across state line in Cook County, Illinois. It is an isolated lake outside of Chicago, and I looked at maps to get an idea, and the lake does indeed straddle the Illinois-Indiana border, so Erdialis did not have to travel far in order to find isolated areas to make things even more complicated by going back and forth between states. Laura had been shot in the head and in the chest. Then, on July 14, 1996, the body of 21-year-old Cassandra Corum was discovered in a different location 
further north, about an hour or so away from Wolf Lake in the Vermilion River in Livingston County, Illinois. She had been shot in the head. And then there was another. On a hot day in August, it was 1996, Detective Don McGrath with the Chicago Police Department received a page. When he called in, he was told that there was a body discovered in the water at Wolf Lake, located in an isolated area outside of Chicago. When he arrived, he saw her, about 20 feet or 6 meters away from the shore. She was face down, and she was naked. And her death? It was horrendously violent. She had been stabbed 29 times, as well as shot three times. Even for a seasoned detective, McGrath found himself very troubled by the sheer number of wounds the victim had suffered. Admittedly, he had yet seen anything like it ever before in his career. All he could say of it was it was unique. The killer demonstrated a level of rage and anger like nothing he'd previously experienced. A lot of fury went into this killing. The victim was later identified as Lynn Huber, and she too was a sex worker. As soon as Detective McGrath got back to the police station, word had already been going around amongst his colleagues that this was, in fact, the second body discovered dead, floating in Wolf Lake in four months. And then they made the connection to the body in the Vermilion River only one month earlier. Investigators began taking a good hard look at these cases. What, if anything, connected them? The M.O. seemed somewhat similar. They had all been shot, though the third victim also suffered a multitude of stab wounds. They had all been discarded in bodies of water. They were all known to be sex workers. But as far as physical or forensic evidence that linked the victims, the killer didn't leave much behind except his bullets. When those were examined by ballistics experts, it was determined that the victims were all killed with bullets that came from the same weapon, which was determined to be a 38 caliber revolver. But as it were, 38 caliber revolvers are so common. There are so many out there. Unless they had a definitive lead as to who may have been responsible for these murders, there was little chance of finding out where the gun that fired these bullets was. The murders of Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn would also grow cold. Then, eight months later, in April of 1997, Chicago detectives got a huge break in the case. It was a tip phoned in by a sex worker. She was calling from the actual motel at which she was with a customer. She told them his name was Andrew Erdialis, and she was nervous because he had some weird requests. I'm not clear as to how it was or in what capacity she made this phone call, but I can imagine he wasn't within earshot, so I'm assuming she excused herself or made something up in order to phone police. But whatever she did, she was able to provide police with some important information. She described the things that he told her he wanted to do. 
She said that he wanted to use duct tape and handcuffs to bind her, and he wanted to put her in the back of his pickup truck and drive her out to Wolf Lake. What Ertie Ellis hadn't realized was this woman was well aware of what was happening to sex workers in the area, and she knew in particular that Wolf Lake had been one of the locations where victims had been disposed of. So once her customer began making these requests and then brought up Wolf Lake, I can imagine the hair stood up on the back of her neck when she realized she was probably in the presence of a killer. And not only was she not going to have anything to do with going anywhere near any lake with this guy, she was going to call police and let them know too. And thank goodness this all went down this way, dreamers, because I mean, what are the chances that a sex worker is going to contact police? It's not a thing these women are likely to do, just due to the nature of their work and the fear of law enforcement and the possibility of getting themselves in trouble. But for this woman and good on her, the potential of not only saving her own life, but also the lives of who knows how many other women after her outweighed whatever apprehensions that she had when it came to contacting police. And thank goodness for the police, right, dreamers? For listening to her, for taking what she had to tell them seriously. They did not have to pay any mind to what she was reporting. They could have come down and taken her into custody, but they didn't. They listened. They knew they had a killer targeting sex workers in their city. And what she described to them sounded way too familiar. And good on them too. Their investigation went from cold to hot in an instant once they had this man's name. Andrew Erdialis. By this time, Erdialis was 32 years old. And I mentioned earlier he was working as a mall security guard, specifically at the Eddie Bauer store that used to be located on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. When they took a look at his background, they found that he had been arrested just a few months earlier over in Indiana. He was charged with the illegal possession of a firearm. And when he was taken into custody, that firearm was confiscated by police. And as it were, that gun just so happened to be a 38 revolver Smith & Wesson. Again, this type and caliber of weapon was so common, but they decided to go ahead and pick up that gun from the authorities in Indiana. And just in the nick of time too, because that gun was slated to be destroyed the following week. Chicago detectives retrieved the weapon and got it over to the crime lab on the double for ballistics testing. Detective McGrath felt like the chances of this being the gun that killed his three victims, Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn, the chances were slim. A complete shot in the dark. One in a million. Detective McGrath should have played the lottery that week too because that gun was indeed that one in a million. That gun that was confiscated from Andrew Erdialis in Indiana was the gun that killed those three women. In an interview, Detective McGrath was asked if he was surprised when the lab results came back matching the gun to his victims, and he said, 
I don't think surprised is the correct word. We were astonished. It was incredible. What a stroke of luck. And it is certainly a sentiment that I agree with. I think when things like this happen during an investigation, these are the stories that I love the most. When it feels like luck steps in and deals you just the right hand. All the things that had to happen just the right way for everything to line up in order for the investigation to finally begin to advance. This man had been murdering women for a decade by the time the Chicago murders were linked to a gun that was linked to him. Think about it. I mean, those officers had to make contact with Ertie Alice in Indiana, right? I don't know why they pulled him over or for what or what reasons he was stopped and searched, but the guy didn't have any criminal history to speak of. He was a military vet. He had legitimate work as a security guard. I don't even know if he was an armed guard or not, but it would not have been unusual for Ertie Ellis to have been in possession of a gun. He probably could have been carrying a gun legally, but for whatever reasons, maybe his gun wasn't registered, maybe he was carrying a gun when he wasn't supposed to be, or maybe it was concealed, I don't know. Whatever the case was, law enforcement were able to place Ertie Ellis under arrest and take his gun away from him and because they were set to destroy it, that leads me to believe that Ertie Ellis was told he would not be able to retrieve his gun again. And then Ertie Ellis went looking for another victim when he picked up the sex worker who had her wits about her enough to recognize that she was in the company of a man who seemed to want to do to her what had been done to those other women she had heard had been murdered and thrown into Wolf Lake. Then... She had to have the courage to take the chance of possibly getting herself in trouble, likely arrested, but looked past all that and called police and told them who she was with and what she suspected. Then the police decided to take what this woman was saying seriously. They didn't brush her aside because of who she was or what her profession was, and they didn't ignore it. They didn't run down there and arrest her and allow this guy to get away. They believed in her, and because of her, they finally had a name, a person of interest in three cold cases they had on their hands, Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn. Then once they had Ertie Alice's name, they were able to look him up. He had that one single run-in with law enforcement over in Indiana, where for whatever reason, he was pulled over or stopped by police, and he had that gun with him illegally and they confiscated it and took him into custody. And just as they were about to have that gun destroyed, melted down or chopped up or whatever they do to confiscated guns. And then Chicago detectives got word about it just in time. And on a wing and a prayer, they took a chance to get their hands on it, on the slim hopes that this was a gun. And it was. And they found their gun. And they found where those bullets came from. And they found who pulled the trigger, who put those bullets into their three victims. Andrew Erdialis was seemingly committing the perfect crimes when he committed these murders. His unraveling would turn out to be getting arrested on weapons charges, 
Not really anything he did directly related to the killings themselves. He could have been trolling for a victim when that happened, but he was essentially getting away with each of these murders. And when the woman he was last with got spooked by his weird sexual request and made the connection to the recent murders of a number of local sex workers, I wouldn't be surprised if he was making those requests because he didn't have his weapon anymore, hoping that she would comply, allowing him to restrain her, and then he would have been able to gain control over her without his gun, which is also likely the reason why she was able to get away and call police because she wasn't being threatened by a gun. I certainly don't want to take away from the work detectives put into this case. You know, they did what they could with what they had. And the murders of sex workers could have just as easily been pushed aside for other pressing matters, but they didn't. And they themselves admitted luck was very much on their side when it came to linking Erdie Alice to these women's murders. With the evidence they finally needed to link Andrew Erdie Alice to these three unsolved murders, Chicago detectives decided to bring him in for questioning. I did not read whether or not they had obtained a warrant for his arrest. I'm fairly certain that they did, but they weren't going to bust down his door and arrest him. They wanted to see if he'd come in and talk voluntarily first. So I'm assuming they had their warrant just in case he didn't want to talk or he wanted to get an attorney first. Either way, on the morning of April 22nd, 1997, Detectives headed over to his residence where he lived with his parents and they surveilled the home. At approximately 9 a.m., Erdie Ellis was seen exiting out the back door of the home and he began walking through the back alleyway. Detectives confronted him. They told him who they were and they asked him if he would come down to the station and answer some questions. Erdie Ellis acted as though this was a normal, everyday occurrence. He was calm. He kept his cool as he agreed to go with them. He was headed to work. He had his security guard uniform on and he had his lunch in his hand. And the only thing he said after he agreed to go was once they were finished, could they give him a ride to work? They were like, um, yeah, sure, we'll give you a ride. I don't know if he thought they were going to ask him about something else unrelated to the murders he committed or if he was confident enough in himself to think that even if this was about the murders, he'd just deny involvement, tell them he had no idea what they were talking about, and he'd be back on his way to work by mid to late morning. Whatever the case, this, to Erdie Ellis, was a minor hiccup in the day as far as he was concerned. When they all sat down for what Erdie Ellis seemed to consider was idle chat, just shooting the breeze here with the officers, he was totally calm, totally collected. He chatted freely, even started off by telling the officers he had been in the Marines previously stationed in California. He was friendly, he was amicable, seemingly wanting to help, fully cooperative. Detectives began asking him about Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn. They had pictures of the three women, and they placed them on the table in front of Erdie Alice. Did he know them? 
Did he recognize any of these women in these pictures? No, no. He didn't know who they were. The next line of questioning involved the gun, the one that was confiscated when he was arrested in Indiana. Had he ever loaned the gun to anyone before it was taken away from him? Did anyone use it, to his knowledge? No, he said. He never loaned it out. As a matter of fact, he added that it was something he took very seriously, owning a weapon. He was very careful with it, always kept it in a safe place, locked in a tackle box, stored down in the basement of his house. Nobody else had access to it, and nobody else had a key to the tackle box. And what Ernie Ellis unknowingly did in making that statement was eliminated the possibility of anyone else ever having had possession of the gun or used it in any way other than himself. And that's when they broke the news to him. He was told his gun, to the exclusion of every other gun in the world, had been proven through ballistics testing to have been the weapon used to kill those three women in the photographs that he'd been shown. What say you, Andrew Erdialis? Erdialis cast his eyes downward. He stared for a moment. Then he proceeded to loosen his tie. I guess I won't be going to work today. That was all it took for Mr. Cool, Calm, and Collected to realize that he was done for good. He was caught for the three Chicago murders. But he wasn't quite done talking yet. He had some news of his own to break to them. He let them know that they might want to get in touch with their California counterparts. Why did they need to get in touch with California? Well, there might be an unsolved homicide or two or three or four or five that they might want to talk about too. Law enforcement officials from both San Diego and Orange Counties made a beeline to Chicago once they were informed of Erdialis' statements. And none of the investigators had any idea what they were in for when they were headed to Illinois. Not until they were told the extent of Ernie Ellis's crimes that he had confessed to having been responsible for in California. With those five killings spanning nearly 10 years, never had the connection been made, nor had they ever considered that they had a serial killer at work. After investigators from California had been brought up to speed by Chicago investigators, they prepared themselves for the next step, going in there and coming face-to-face with the man who had killed five women in their respective counties. They sat down, 30 Alice, across from them. He was again reminded of his rights, and he waved them all. He wanted to talk without an attorney, and... He just started talking. Again, with the demeanor of a man engaged in casual, nonchalant conversation, he was so calm, no signs of any nervousness, no fear, no apprehension. He never became agitated or upset 
never lost his composure. And investigators just sat there, listening intently. Erdialis described a relatively pleasant upbringing. He described his family as close. His parents were very loving. There was nothing he mentioned in his background growing up that would have indicated what was to come later on in Erdialis's life. But somewhere, somehow, something went sideways. Something in Erdialis turned. He told investigators that his relationship with his family and his parents was ideal. But when it came to relationships outside of that, that was a different story. Though this story would change later on. He said he was never really able to maintain close friendships with people. For the most part, growing up, throughout school, even into adulthood, he was a loner. Somehow this developed into an intense hatred directed towards women. How or why this was, it isn't clear if he ever said specifically, as later on he would claim insanity. But I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere along the line he experienced a rejection from a woman that enraged him. And like the other misogynists that we've discussed, his anger turned to rage and he took it out on these women. I don't know this. He's never said. His time in the military he described as frustrating. And what he meant by that also isn't clear. But again, if I were to entertain a theory, I'd say he just didn't like the discipline and he didn't like being told what to do all the time. After he was discharged, he went back to live with his parents in Chicago. He got that job as a security guard. He was even elected as union representative. By all appearances, Erdie Ellis had seamlessly transitioned back into civilian life. But on the flip side of that, he had already racked up four murders. So he was very much able to present this facade of normalcy, living essentially a double life, like most, if not all, serial killers. And once Erdie Ellis started talking to investigators, he just unloaded everything, confessing to all the killings, just as calm as he had been from the beginning. He discussed how he picked these women up. He went into details how he attacked and tortured them and ultimately killed them. And he recalled everything with impeccable detail. He remembered what each victim was wearing, the style of clothing, the kind of shoes they had on, the color of their underwear, the jewelry that they had. He even knew what material their shoes were made out of, if they were canvas or if they were leather or if they had on flip-flops or tennis shoes. And the way he sat there talking about his crimes and his victims, it gave the investigators the creeps. Just sitting there in his presence, unnerved every single one of them. He talked about his first killing, Robin. He was stationed at Camp Pendleton. He said something happened that made him angry, though he couldn't explain it. In his interrogation, he said, I don't know. I was just getting aggravated, pissed off about something. I was just driving around that area, and I noticed a sign that said Saddleback College, so I stopped, 
and I just parked my car. I was walking, and I had my knife with me. I don't know why. This is when he noticed Robin walking towards the parking lot, so he took cover behind a car, and he continued. I started walking towards her, and she turned around and looked but didn't say anything. Then she saw the knife, and she screamed briefly, but I put my hands over her mouth. I think I said I wanted her purse. The next thing I know, the knife went into her back. Once, twice, several times, she fell. And there will always be that one question everyone, all of us, are forever asking. Why? Erdie Ellis is one of those killers who you'd have to delve into the mind of someone like that to try and figure out what drives him. All investigators could come up with is just he wanted to cause someone a lot of pain. And he needed someone more vulnerable, someone he could overpower, someone who wasn't expecting it in order to do so. It was apparent to the detectives and everyone involved in this case that every punch, every slap, every stab, every bullet was delivered with an immeasurable amount of rage. None of his victims knew him. None of them did anything to him. But he unleashed his fury onto them as if they'd all crossed him. And from what Jennifer described, his only victim to survive, he was looking for reasons to get angrier and angrier. And so he was in this cycle. His rage would build up to a point where he couldn't take it anymore. He'd go out looking for his next victim, and with each one, he became better at it. He learned from each victim he murdered. His killings were methodically planned out. His plans did not only include the abduction and the murder itself, but also involved the plan of making sure he would get away with each of his killings. Lots of killers have a plan. I talked about planning crimes in episode 90 when we discussed Ralph Marcus's 20 years long plan to seek revenge against the woman who'd spurned him. We talked about the planning of Christopher Dorner, Elliot Roger, Dylan Klebold, Eric Harris, and Peter Keller. I said part of the excitement for some of them was the planning. Same goes for Ertie Alice. The planning was a part of the whole experience. And you want to know exactly how prepared Andrew Erdielis was? Remember, for at least part of the time, he was living in Illinois but killing in California. What better way of going undetected, right? We've heard of serial killers who are mobile. They'll go some distances and commit their killings as they travel. They have this randomness about them that makes them more difficult to pin down. The time that elapses between victims tends to vary, as do other aspects of their crimes. Then there are some serial killers who've killed from one central location. It's like their way of hiding in plain sight. Killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy. But for Ertie Ellis to reside halfway across the United States and travel to California with the specific purpose of killing is somewhat unusual. 
and it made tracking him down, aside from the fact that he was meticulous and careful to not leave behind evidence. So well planned were his crimes that the man actually kept and maintained a storage unit in Palm Springs, California, where he stored the items that he needed to commit his murders. The so-called murder kit. In this locker, he had a 45 caliber pistol, rounds of ammunition, a machete, face masks, Illinois license plates, shovels, twine, and duct tape. Everything he needed to kidnap, bind, and murder. Ertie Ellis would take a flight from Illinois to California. He would rent a car, stop in at his storage unit, pick up his killing equipment, and then go looking for a woman to kidnap, take her out to the desert, and murder her, leaving her out there to be taken away by time, the elements, and scavengers. He specifically vacationed in Southern California with the sole purpose of doing what he enjoyed doing while on vacation, killing. And that's exactly what he was doing in California when he abducted Jennifer S. Benson on September 27, 1992. A living, breathing survivor. I can only imagine the shock and the surprise and the excitement that went surging through the investigators when they realized that they had a survivor. One woman who had seen this man, who knows his face, who had experienced his violence and rage, and lived to be able to tell what happened and identify him. It must have been an incredible moment to find out that they actually had a survivor. Erdialis detailed his attempt on Jennifer's life in his confession as well. And like the others that didn't make it out alive, he recalled every detail of his attempt on her life also. He described seeing her near the bus stop. He pulled up next to her, rolled his window down, asked her if she needed a ride. He said she didn't hesitate. Remember, she had missed her bus and needed to get to work that night. So she got in his car. He said she was very pretty. And he recounted what happened between them, exactly how she had reported it to detectives almost five years earlier. He knew exactly what she looked like, what she was wearing, what kind of shoes she had on, even how her hair was styled. He described how he had tied her hands with twine behind her back. And he said in his confession, Suddenly, I had my hands on her neck. I just started squeezing her, choking her with my hands. And I put her in the trunk. But then suddenly, before I could get out there, I seen the hood kind of pop open and she had her hands free at the time and she went screaming. And of her escape, he said he was furious. I just got in the car and sped off. I just left in a big cloud of dust. So that was the last time I saw her. Andrew Erdialis would see Jennifer again, however. The only woman known to have escaped him would have her chance to come face to face with him in court. His attack on her plagued her life for the five years that it went unsolved. 
compounded by the fact that she had no idea who it was that attacked her, where he was, if he was going to come for her to finish what he had started, and the fact that police didn't take her seriously. They didn't believe her, feeling as though she had described something that was far too incredible. But five years after she escaped with her life, law enforcement showed up on her doorstep. They wanted to talk to her. Could she come down to the police station? Sure, she could do that. Jennifer was brought down to the station and the detective told her that he was going to show her 10 pictures. He will line them up across the table. He wanted her to take a good look at every picture and tell him if anyone looked familiar. It did not take long for her eyes to be drawn straight to Andrew Erdialis's photo in the lineup. I don't even know if she bothered looking that closely at the other nine photographs. Once she spotted Erdialis in the pack, she knew instantly. It was him. That's him right there, pointing at Erdialis's image. The detective picked up the photograph. He held it up. And he asked her, Do you know who this man is? And Jennifer said, Yes. That is the man who attacked me and he tried to kill me. He paused and then he said, This is a man who has killed eight women and you are the only one that got away. Three weeks later, Jennifer was in Chicago for a pretrial hearing. And there she was in the same room with the guy who had attacked her five years earlier. She described the experience, seeing him for the first time since then, in one word. Sickening. Ertie Alice's family was in the courtroom as well, and Jennifer decided that she wanted some answers from them. This was her chance to try and get an answer to the question we all wanted to know the answer to. Why? She confronted Erdialis's family outside the courthouse, but they hurried away from the building, away from the cameras. But Jennifer followed, pleading with them for some answers. Why? Why did he do this? You had no idea he was a maniac like this? You had no idea? It didn't seem as though they had any interest in speaking to Jennifer. But as soon as they made their way across the street, Heading to the parking area, Erdialis's sister suddenly stopped. She came back across the street and she came towards Jennifer and she hugged her. She told her that they don't really understand themselves. She offered an apology. She was sorry, really sorry. But that's the only thing she could say at that point. But for Jennifer, it was enough. That's what she needed from them. It brought her a measure of relief to know that they would at least acknowledge her, acknowledge what their son and brother had done to her, and in a small way, showed that they cared. Andrew Erdialis would stand trial in Illinois for the murders of Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn in 2002 and Jennifer would take the stand and testify 
as to what he did to her in the California desert back in 1992. As she spoke, she looked his way, but he never looked at her. He remained still, quiet, and stoic, completely unmoved by what she was telling to the court. In unbearably painful detail, Jennifer described how Andrew Erdialis kidnapped her, tied her up, attacked her, sexually assaulted her, and tortured her. How he punched her, yanked her around by her hair, gagged her with her own underwear, choked her into unconsciousness. Tears flowing down her cheeks as she spoke of her attack to the court. And the jury? They cried with her. She knew and they knew the magnitude of what she was there to say. Because she was not only the voice for herself. Jennifer was the voice for eight women who were unable to be there to speak for themselves. Because Andrew Erdialis had so violently taken their lives. Though, to me... Jennifer S. Benson had so much strength to come face to face with this man and stand up and speak to what he did. There could not have been a more powerful voice in that courtroom. She did not allow those eight women to remain anonymous, to remain silent. She brought every single one of them back to life and she commanded the courtroom for them. Jennifer, in an interview, minimized her role in the case because she survived. For her, the ones who lost the most were the ones who lost their lives and their families and their loved ones who had suffered the pain of their loss. And as true as that may be, Jennifer, to me, was and is much more of a hero in the story than she would ever acknowledge. Of course, the defense wasn't going to be able to deny the charges against Erdialis. He had already provided a full and complete detailed confession. What they were there to do was to try to prove Andrew Erdialis was insane. Contradicting his own statement to police that he grew up in a close-knit loving home, witnesses took the stand on behalf of Erdialis and presented a very different narrative of his upbringing. It was presented in court that his childhood was a violent one. His parents were abusive. He suffered several broken bones and injuries that required stitches and that he was neglected. It was also said he was molested by an older sister. An expert psychiatrist hired by the defense testified that both sides of Erdialis's family had long histories of mental illness and reached the conclusion that Erdialis himself was psychotic and a paranoid schizophrenic and lacked the ability to understand laws restricting him from killing. In other words, he did not know the difference between right and wrong. But the prosecutors argued that the suggestion that Erdialis suffered through all of these hardships as a child growing up were grossly exaggerated, and were all part of the plan to formulate the insanity defense over the five years that he had been in jail awaiting trial. But the defense brought up several experts who insisted the mental illness was not something Erdialis was faking. So it was basically a battle of the experts, who the jury was going to choose to believe. And they chose to believe Erdialis was a cold-blooded, calculating killer. 
They rejected the notion that he was insane and found him guilty of the murders of Laura, Cassandra, and Lynn. Andrew Erdialis was sentenced to death. But despite that, California wanted their turn to try him for the murders out there as well. Even though he was condemned to death in Illinois, justice still needed to be had for the five families that lost their loved ones. And of course, for the one who made it out alive, Jennifer. In 2011, Illinois abolished the death penalty, so Erdie Ellis' sentence was commuted to life in prison along with all the other inmates in the state who were on death row. But California was still going forward in bringing their murder charges, but it wouldn't be until 2018 before he was extradited to California and brought to trial, some 16 years after his last trial back in 2002. By this time, Jennifer had become a mother herself, and with Erdie Alice in prison for his crimes, she had finally been able to rediscover the beauty and joy in life that had evaded her all those years, not knowing who it was that attacked her or where he was. And Jennifer would again come to court and speak for herself and the five women he murdered here in California when he was brought to trial. On May 22, 2018, Andrew Erdialis was convicted of the murders of Robin, Julie, Marianne, Tammy, and Denise. The jury only took about an hour to deliberate. On June 12, 2018, the jury recommended Erdialis be sentenced to death. And on October 5th, he was once again sentenced to death. He was sent to live out the remainder of his days on California's death row located at San Quentin State Prison. But he would only live there for less than one month. On November 2nd, 2018, Andrew Erdialis became the 24th person since 1978 to commit suicide on California's death row. He was found unresponsive in his cell during a security check. He was 54 years old. Two days later, as I mentioned at the beginning of our story, Virendra Govin took his own life as well. He was 51 years old. Before he was sentenced to death, Andrew Erdialis spoke to the court. He offered his sincerest apologies to the victims' families, the jurors, the judge, the prosecutors, and his family for having to put them through the experience of having to sit through the details of his horrific crimes. He also apologized to Jennifer. And that brings this 91st episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as other true crime stories, other news events, television shows that we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read, Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram 
at California Dreaming Pod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and talented hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, where you can find California Dreaming merchandise like t-shirts, mugs, hoodies. Take a pic and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you just want to email us, give us your feedback, your comments, your questions, or just let us know what you think. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.